The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Today we have another Q&A episode and I love these because I love getting to hear what questions you have. I sourced most of these questions from either social media or my email. I did an Insta story call out for questions and got a lot of great ones. And I picked the questions that were asked repeatedly in different ways and questions that I end up talking to teachers a lot about. So I think these are great ones to get a lot of ideas flowing. If you want your question answered on the podcast, you can shoot me an email, you can send me a DM, and I will try to make sure to get it in next time. So Matt, what's our first question? First one's a two-parter. From Instagram, we got a bunch of different ways of asking, what do you do when the parent doesn't agree with a plan? And then specifically, Tori asks if you have any tips for communicating with difficult parents. I think I said this already in a different podcast, and I don't actually remember what episode. But when we approach every interaction and communication with parents, we need to be thinking in our head that this is someone's baby. Even if they're 20 years old and they're 300 pounds and they're a man, they're still someone's baby. 
And let's be clear, I am a current difficult parent. Like the poor, poor future teachers of my daughters, like I feel bad for them already. Like you know I'm going to be like coming in hot on those parent-teacher conferences. So when we frame things difficult parent, we want to kind of reframe that in our head. Because if you approach a conversation with a parent and you're thinking, oh, this is a difficult parent, that's going to, going to affect the way you interact with them. You're going to be a little bit more defensive. You might be harsher than you intend. But if you approach that parent instead, reframing that kind of you know association you have with them and walking up to mom and dad, instead of thinking, this is a difficult parent, think, wow, this is a parent that really cares about their kid. This is a super involved parent. Think about that instead. And I know we've been there as teachers. Sometimes there are parents that are challenging to deal with. We as people sometimes are just challenging to deal with. And when a parent advocates really, really well for their child, they might be hard to deal with, but they're doing exactly what they should be doing. They are working tirelessly for their kid and their kid needs them. Their kid needs that advocate in their corner. And I think the the goal in these situations with a parent that is super involved and is really a strong advocate for their child, you want to make the message clear in every conversation, in every interaction, that you are on their team. And yes, it's their team. They're the leader. They're the mom or the dad. And you want them to know that no matter what, you're on their team. The way that you um, implement things might be a smidge different, but you have a common goal. And your goals, both you and mom and dad, your goals are the best interest of their child. So that might mean taking the time to explain things. Because a lot of conflict just rises from miscommunication. There's the quite, you know, the first question was, you know, mom and dad don't agree with maybe a behavior plan or part of the IEP. So sit down and explain. Take the time to really talk through why you selected these interventions or why you selected this IEP goal. Because it might just be a miscommunication. And let mom and dad explain their side. Because they might have a perspective that you haven't thought of that could be really valuable. And I know that having a large class or a high caseload is challenging because it means there's a lot of meetings and a lot of interactions with parents. And it's hard and you don't have time always. And that's okay for it to be hard, but it doesn't mean that it's not necessary and it's not hugely beneficial for the kid. I would much rather have a quote-unquote difficult parent who is super involved in their child's education than a parent that doesn't want to be involved and is acting like maybe they don't care. Obviously they care, but we get that kind of framed in our head too, that parents don't care. Another topic for another day. But I'd rather have the super involved parent because that's going to be better for Johnny. When I'm working hard at school on something and mom and dad are working at hard at home on something, it's going to be better, better for Johnny in the end. So overall, this was a really long answer to this question, but it's an important question, is remind yourself, this is someone's baby 
and reframe your internal language about that parent because you've maybe developed a negative connotation with them. Maybe you had some type of conflict in the past with them, um, you know, had some disagreement. So reframe that. Stop thinking that's a difficult parent. Think that's a that's an involved parent and that's a parent that's working really hard for their child. And just kind of keep thinking that and seeing how that shapes the way that you engage with them. And that last point is explain, explain, explain. The key is communication. That's what's going to make these relationships maybe take them from more combative to really collaborative. Communication is key there. That's a lot of C words, but it works. Okay. Next question. Crystal would like to know, how do you find time to create materials? So totally different topic here. So material creation is super overwhelming. And in the world of Pinterest and social media, there's millions of pictures of beautifully laminated tasks. And you probably feel like if you don't have, you know, 400 pounds of laminated materials, you're not doing enough. It takes so much time to create materials. Rome was not built in a day. You are not supposed to leave your first year teaching or even your fifth year teaching having like thousands and thousands of prepped things. So first of all, make sure your expectations match kind of the realities of your job. Your whole job isn't to be Velcroing and laminating. So you don't need to have your whole classroom perfect by, you know, September and that's just how it's going to be. So keep kind of, you know, yourself in check there. When I started teaching, there was no Pinterest, there was no, you know, teacher Instagrams, things like that. I had three task lore books, if anyone remembers those, and those I like lived and breathed by and tried to recreate everything in there. But I can't imagine how overwhelming it is to be especially a newer teacher and go on Pinterest and just be totally overwhelmed with the amount of ideas and resources that are out there now. It's great. It's for sure great, but I can imagine it's extremely overwhelming also. So keep your expectations in check and maybe make like a goal for yourself. Like every month I'm going to make one new resource or something like that that you can sustain. So then you can actually feel like you're making progress on what you said, not have this kind of ambiguous goal that you never hit or don't hit. So the second thing, what does this look like on a practical level on a day-to-day basis? When do you actually find the time to do this, to make materials? So my best advice is to utilize your staff. So you have paraprofessionals and their main job is working with the kids. But there will be times that will kind of pop up where there is not a child there. Maybe the child's out sick, the child went to speech, um, you have an extra paraprofessional that day. My goal was to be ready at any given moment to have someone working on materials because you're not going to be able to go print something and get the laminator out in the middle of the day when those 10 minutes appear. But when those 10 minutes appear, I want to be ready. So I think setting up some type of work prep station in your classroom is key for this. And it can be the back of your teacher's desk. It can be in the closet, somewhere that you have your laminator, your Velcro, and then a little filing system. Maybe you have a pile of things to be laminated. You have a pile of things to be photocopied and having a pile of things to be Velcroed and have it all there ready to go. So the second someone has uh, 10 spare minutes in their day, you be like, cool, go over to the work station, you know, the work prep station and see how much you can get done. If you find little 10 minutes, 15 minutes here and there throughout the week, suddenly you have, 
oh, wow, we had 60 minutes throughout the week to prep materials. That's awesome. So you'll be able to really make a lot of progress on that goal you set for making materials that way if you can kind of do it piecemeal instead of thinking, oh man, I got to sit down for five hours on a Saturday. Just getting a few things done here and there, it'll really come together and you'll really make some real progress. Okay, next question. Kayla asks, what are some strategies for refusal to transition to non-preferred tasks? I'd ask yourself, is this a can't do or won't do? So can't do is the student doesn't have the skills to complete the task or behavior expected of them. So maybe it's engaging in some type of conversation, but the student is still working on great listening skills and commenting skills and doesn't quite know what's expected of them in a conversation with new people. If it's a won't do, it's an issue of motivation. So there's just not a reinforcement there for the student. There's nothing that's reinforcing. So why bother doing it? So I think that when I talk about can't do and won't do's in PDs, I always use the example of running a mile. If someone asked me to run a mile in six minutes, I can't do it. I don't have the skills to do it. So that's a can't do. If someone just asked me to run a mile and it could take however long I wanted it to, well, let's be real. It's a won't do. I don't want to run a mile. There's nothing motivating about that for me. But if someone said, hey, if you run a mile and I'll give you 50 bucks, I'm like, okay, cool. I'll run the mile. I'm not going to do it in six minutes because I still don't have the skills to do it, but I have the skills to run a mile and now I'm motivated because you're giving me 50 bucks. So my answer here is not give kids 50 bucks to do the task, but it's to approach these situations thinking if it's an issue of skill deficit or an issue of motivation. So if it's an issue of skill deficit, you want to really look at adjusting the task to make it closer to the student's skill level and start building on those skills. It's not fun to do things that we are not good at. I mean, who loves doing long division? No one, right? It's like kind of hard and it's not fun. So think about what skills you need to teach that student to complete that task and how you can adjust that task and scaffold it in the meantime until they have those skills so that they are ready and prepared. This happens a lot, I think. I see this playing out in in junior highs and high school classrooms a lot um, with teenagers that it is cooler to be the naughty kid the kid that doesn't listen, the kid that gets sent to the principal's office, the kid that gets detention, it's cooler to be that kid than the dumb kid, than the kid that doesn't know how to read the passage, the kid that doesn't know the answer when the teacher's calls on them. So I see this play out just all the time that kids will act out and they're totally fine with getting a detention or getting sent out of the room because it means that now their friends don't have to know that they didn't know the answer anyways. Because, and they need skills and they need instruction and they need task adjustment so they can have those skills and be able to complete the task that's given to them. If it's an issue of motivation, you want to really look at what the reinforcer is. We need a reinforcer for especially new skills. New skills are hard to do. So you want to be really making sure that the reinforcer's there and it's not just a preferred item. It's something that's actually reinforcing to that behavior. So really approach it then from the can't do and won't do perspective. So the original question was asking about refusal to transition to a non-preferred task. But let's think about a similar situation. Let's think about refusal to transition 
away from a preferred task. So the situation here is student is playing iPad, they're playing on the computer, and you have to tell them that the iPad's over, computer's over, and they have to transition away from that preferred activity likely to something they don't want to do. So that situation happens all the time, right? You can't, you get your iPad break, but the iPad break is not going to be three hours. It's a certain amount of time. And there's a point where you're going to have to say, no, the iPad's over and you have to get off the iPad and come do something else. And yes, that stinks. No one wants to give up the iPad. I get it. What are some strategies for you, the teacher to, or the parent to um, utilize in these scenarios? Because this is a little bit similar to our first question. So what I think about in these situations is we had a lot of discussions on this topic a few semesters ago when I was teaching a practicum course um, for graduate ABA students. There was a student who had a client that had a lot of struggles with this, and she did a lot of research into different evidence-based strategies in the ABA world. And she used a really cool combination of interventions that they actually had a lot of success with because the student was engaging in a lot of aggression related to giving the iPad or technology back and was actually breaking technology um, in the process of transitioning away from it. So what they did was they worked on before he got whatever tech he was getting, it was an iPad or computer, before he got that, he had to practice giving the iPad back a few times. So before he even got his turn yet, so he's still pretty motivated to work for getting the iPad. He had to practice getting the iPad, giving it back to the teacher, getting the iPad, giving it back to the teacher. So kind of getting in the the movements and the process of that. They used a visual timer, which I think is great. Another way, if you don't have a visual timer, is even just like a set of five stickers. When you get the last sticker, that's it. Something like that. Um, So they used the visual timer, gave a lot of cueing to when the iPad was going to be done. Another thing that they did, which I think is important to think about with a lot of our kids, was they kind of monitored the length of how long he was using the iPad in relation to the videos he was watching. So he was watching a lot of YouTube videos and they they made sure to not stop the iPad time in the middle of a video. So we watched a lot of short videos. So this worked well for this particular child because they found a good break when he went to transition between videos. That's when they had the timer go off to take the iPad because it's kind of extra aversive to stop something you're doing when it's right in the middle of something. Like think about the last time you were watching like a really good episode of The Real Housewives. Like, it's really, really good. And then someone comes and starts talking to you. Like, that's annoying, right? You're like, I'm in the middle of something awesome. So seeing if you can find those, like, quote-unquote commercial breaks in whatever reinforcer they're using might be really helpful. The last step is when they give you the reinforcer, the, the tech, the cool break, whatever they were doing, provide a less amazing reinforcer for giving it back. So what I mean by this is when Johnny gives the iPad, yes, you're not going to give him another iPad break, but give him something else awesome. Give him a ton of praise, maybe give him a little treat, maybe give something else that's a preferred item to kind of provide reinforcement for giving the item back. Okay, Wanda asks... How do you teach independent functioning skills to students that have severe difficulties in this area? Whenever I talk about independent work or independent work systems, I always get a lot of messages, specifically from preschool teachers. And they're like, ah, I'm preschool. How do I do this? You know, I have little babies. They 
can't yet work by themselves and I don't know if I, maybe I just don't need to do independent work or how does this even look? And this question is not specific to preschool teachers because many of us that teach older grades might have students that don't have the skills to work independently right now. So what do we do to get them there? And I want to pull a little bit of inspiration from podcast episode number two, where we talk about growth mindset and add the word yet to the end of your sentence. They don't have the skills to independently work yet. So we're working on it. So you might have an independent workstation in your classroom. And yeah, none of your kids can work on their own yet. It's a station that needs an adult and there needs to be a lot of prompting and help. But you're working towards the goal of independent work. It might take a month. It might take a year. It might take 10 years. Who cares? As long as you're making progress towards that goal and you're approaching that skill with this growth mindset of they don't have the skill to work independently yet, you will make progress. It's slow and steady, but you'll get there. So in these situations, set up work tasks that are basic, that are fine motor based. If you go on Pinterest and search put in task, put in tasks, that's hard to say. There's tons of cool ideas, things that are just basic and easy to do. You can make all of these things with things you recycle in your house. You don't need anything fancy. Set up a simple work task task system, whether something like the three bin drawers, something like um, the numbered box system that I talk about a lot on my website. I'll put the links in the show notes here. Set up a very, you know, straightforward, structured approach and have the paraprofessional or the teacher be there and utilize your prompt fading and take data on your prompts. Oh my gosh, yes. Because you want to see if you're making progress. If Johnny needed hand over hand prompting in September, it's February. Does he still need hand over hand prompting or can you use some gestural prompting? So do it every day. Mix up the tasks, fade your prompts, give some time delay. And by time delay, I mean don't jump in with the prompt right away. See if they'll do some of it themselves. Maybe they put the last block in by themselves or they push the bin back where it goes by themselves. Make sure you're using a high-powered reinforcer. Once the student starts getting a little bit of success, like maybe you only have to use gestural or verbal prompts, like saying, okay, Johnny, get started and pointing to the first block. Then really think about your proximity. Where are you standing? Where are you sitting? I see this all the time. I see kids that actually can work independently really well, and they're sitting at an independent workstation doing all their work, and an adult is sitting right next to them. So we got to fade that. So even if that just means that every day you move your chair a few inches back, a few inches back, and be out of the line of sight of that student, be away from them, because the goal is independence. They don't need you. So you don't want them to see you. You want The goal is that you're not going to be there. So start to play with even the proximity of where you're standing if the student no longer needs physical prompts. So those are all the questions that I have for this episode. If you want your question to be on the podcast, shoot me an email, send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. I'd love to have your question on here. So the common theme for these four questions, which were very different, but a common theme throughout all the answers was just take a step back. Sometimes we're just stuck in the way that we do things and the way that we think about things that's actually not productive. 
So when it comes to relationships with parents, instead of approaching a parent maybe as a difficult parent, approach and reframe their relationship with you as a parent that's advocating really hard for their kid and go from kind of being in a conflict, you know, driven relationship to be a teammate with them and really stress that you guys are on the same team and you have the same goals that they do. When it comes to transitioning away from a preferred item, step back with how you approach that. You know, don't just rush in and be like, the timer's up, the iPad's mine. So really re, you know, think about when it's transitioning to that non-preferred task, is it transitioning to the non-preferred task or is it transitioning away from something that I was enjoying doing? When it comes to independent work, step back also there. Um, It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be something that you need to teach and the baby steps are what's going to get you there. And taking data is key because you want to make sure that you are actually seeing progress. And the other question that we had about um, developing materials and prepping different resources for your classroom Also step back in how you think about that because we think we have to do all of it ourselves. I have to have all of it perfect right away. You don't. Who said that? Nobody. You said that. So make it a team effort. Set up that kind of work prep corner in your class and have it be something that everyone's working together on. That also really ties into our episode on the podcast called The Ikea Effect, which gets that staff buy-in. If your staff is helping you make materials, they're going to want to use those materials with your kids too. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Q&A podcast and definitely send in some questions for our next Q&A episode that we'll have in a few weeks and have a great week. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. And this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.
Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.